welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet-Karnak. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss the fact that environmental justice means that black lives matter. Plus, we speak to the executive director of the UN Environment Programme, Inga Anderson. And we have a special appearance from Jane Goodall. Thanks for being here. So world environment. Okay, Tom. All right. <laughs> I don't know. How do we start without Christiana? She's away. I feel bad. How do we start with Christiana? It's impossible. We've got it. It's kind of, we've totally <laughs> gone off and we're talking at the same time and it's just like, there's no order. When it she's demonstrates gone. that really, no... you know, whether she's speaking or not, she's just sort of controlling us. It's true. And the, but also that we want to be controlled and that we're better <laughs> when we're controlled. Um, that organizing spirit I find enlightening and reassuring. And I'm quite on edge and nervous with you now, Tom, in a, in a nice and friendly and supportive and this way. Is a th- you know, this is a three week holiday. She's not going to be back for a bit. Three weeks? <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna we have a she is an occasion that we can rise to. So That's let's true. try and let's try and put our, our, our grumpy disorganization to one side and, and and reflect on the best of what she has taught us. Good point. Okay, so rising to the occasion, Tom. Um, it's World Environment Day. Uh, it's wonderful uh, that we're talking to the head of the United Nations Environment Programme because that's a very significant organization, and I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. But like. Everyone uh, uh, in the world, I'm also um, very struck by um, some extraordinary, I guess you would call them political civil events um, focused on the United States. And uh, Tom, you know, what are your reflections on this? Well, it's what an amazing time to live through, right? And it's, it's, it just feels like this moment of collective awakening around racial injustice has been so long in coming um, and change is painful, but it feels, I mean, deep down, it feels like this is a chance for transformation and that can only be good, right? I mean, there was, um, we've had various people on the podcast over the year that we have been broadcasting, particular Isra Hersey, um, from Minneapolis, uh, daughter of uh, Representative Ilhan Omar, who talked a lot about the fact that there can be no climate justice without social justice. Um, and actually, she, you know, she called out these issues around environmental racism, and we need to be aware of that fact that it exists in the environmental community as well. And, you know, as we see what's unfolding in the US, I mean, Minneapolis is my adopted home. Um, my wife is from there, so I've spent a long time there, and it's been, you know, an interesting and painful experience to see how this has unfolded and the pain that's poured out from the community there and what's happened. But I mean, I think it's making us all reflect on the world that we've created and how we can all play a more constructive role in trying to create a a better future, right? I mean, we are all responsible for this. I'm just, I'm reading this book at the moment that I cannot recommend highly enough. It's called Me and White Supremacy. It's by Lila F. Saad. And it, you basically go through it and you examine your own internal ways of thinking, your own assumptions. And it's really challenging because what it demonstrates is that this racism um, is just so baked into our society, into the structures of our society. And I know that what's going on in the US talks particularly about the police. But I think like the Me Too movement, we all need to examine ourselves and say, we've all been part of this problem. And we all need to be part of this solution. We cannot solve big, systemic, challenging issues like the climate crisis if we don't get on top of things like structural racism. And that's not to say that's the only reason to do it. There is a deep, inherent moral reason why 
this should have been dealt with a long time ago, but at least we're now facing it now. But this, it's up to all of us who are now awakening to the depth and the extent of the reality of this all around the world, not just in the US. We have this problem in many countries, including the UK, including probably many countries where listeners are sitting right now. It is up to all of us to decide that we will not put up with this anymore. We can no longer afford the the assumption that this is just part of society. We need to deal with it from a structural perspective. We need to examine our own assumptions. We need, need to look at how our minds work and bring, drag all of that subconscious stuff out into the conscious realm. Because if we don't do it, these things are just going to perpetuate and we will never be able to deal with the big, challenging, interlocking issues that we need to deal with. So now is a huge moment of opportunity. We have to grab it. <laughs> Well, very wise words. And indeed, I do remember uh, a young Isra Hersey speaking so eloquently and effectively about the responsibilities of actually uh, white people to demonstrate on uh, climate issues because she said it was not safe for black people to demonstrate in the United States. And right. clearly, we've seen a, a very damaging and, 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 and terrifying example of that. Um, you know, I also want to speak a little bit um, about Donald Trump, but actually not Donald Trump the person and not the US president, but rather um, the attitude that he's been embodying and the approach that he's been taking. Um, the, 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 the comments, uh, I think one on Twitter um, and, and also uh, I think in his call with governors, he talked about a need to dominate. I very remember that, that term dominate. Dominate Christiana the streets, Jesus. He, he, he said, uh, you know, the, the, the conversation he had with governors uh, was recorded and uh, many people listening to the show will have heard him say, you know, you need to use force or you're going to look like jerks. Um, which is a very, it's a very childish um, interpretation of a of a major issue when a when a nation is is uh, divided over over a critical issue. Very very juvenile language, I noticed particularly. Um, there's been a lot of um, outrage about the uh, the walk to the photo op uh, with a with a Bible opposite the White House. Um, but I'm particularly struck. I don't know if anyone's watched the um, Australian TV footage. So live on Australian TV, um, the police, uh, presumably under the orders from 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 the administration, um, punched a, a, a TV cameraman whilst he was filming. So um, Australian TV viewers saw um, a, a journalist uh, with a microphone and 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 a cameraman actually attacked by by police. Um, now. I wanted to share with with our, our, our listeners something that's made me cry repeatedly, to be honest with you, and that is um, what domination has looked like uh, on the streets of the US. I've seen photos from Los Angeles, from Miami, from Washington, D.C., of, um, of the head of the NYPD kneeling with demonstrators getting down on one knee and kneeling with the demonstrators. I've seen the National Guard do it. Mm. And that is um, a beautiful alchemy for me of domination turning into um, mutual understanding, a kind of unity. And uh, it fills me with the most enormous hope, actually, and uh, confidence that whatever sort of negative forces may be kicking around uh, our countries at the moment, that the human spirit's ability to heal rather than divide these wounds uh, is uh, is pretty inspirational, actually. So just just a, a little shout out to uh, 
those law enforcement officers and those demonstrators who uh, are much more interested in uniting around uh, the cause of division than 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 than, than worsening it. Yeah. Um, so pretty inspiring and wonderful. No, that's and I've seen I've seen that, and I've also seen other footage. I mean, of of communities that come together where you know the white people have knelt down together and asked for forgiveness from their from their black neighbours. And I mean, it's, it just feel you see stuff like that, and you realize that actually there is a lot of good in people. People don't. The majority of people want to find a positive way through this. Want to examine their own assumptions. Want to find a way where this can constructively move forward. I mean, this has been around for so long. I mean, I don't know if you remember our very first podcast. We 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 talked about the words of John Lewis from the March on Washington in the '60s, uh, where he said to those who have said, "Be patient and wait." We must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually. We want to be free now. We are tired. We're tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. I mean, this has been such a generational struggle for decades. And um, the, the other thing that struck me this week was that Bill McKibben, in his brilliant newsletter, quoted John Muir, the legendary environmental philosopher. And he said, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Living in a community with high levels, and this is what McKibben said, living in a community of high levels of air pollution impairs human bodies, raises blood pressure, increases cancer, but so does living in a place with a brutal police force. I think it's just such a beautiful way of demonstrating that these things are coupled, they're tied together. We have passed the point in human history where we can separate them out, deal with this one thing and not the other. We have to deal with this whole set of things together. And it's, it, I mean, it's painful and it's difficult, but I really hope and trust and feel positive that this outrage can lead to a real moment of transformation. Optimism, even if you will. I think it was E.F. Schumacher, uh, the uh, ecologist. I, I saw him uh, on, on, a, on a bit of a TV, uh, on a panel uh, many years ago saying, I have for a moment thought briefly that one thing might be separated from something else. <laughs> but I mean, his point is, it's they not. ain't. That's Everything right. is all connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that? Uh, that was a WhatsApp going in from Christiana sitting oh, on the beach. Okay. Cost- all right, should we, it's a, it's, she has this habit of sending voice messages. That's fantastic. Should Whoa. we listen to it? Please, yeah, let play it, play all right, it. All right. Okay, guys, I know that you're doing the commentary of today's episode without me. But if you thought that that meant... Oh, God, I think it's going to be an advertorial for Costa Rica. ...another dose of the wonderfulness of Costa Rica, you're actually very wrong. It's, it's fine. Honestly, I she loves her country. It's, it's, it's absolutely you fine. Know, we just, you know, national passion is, is part of her DNA. ...is that our... Minister of Energy and the Environment has been chosen as the new CEO of the GEF, the Global Environment Facility, headquartered in Washington and the major financier of environmental projects around the world. Outrage, so, optimism and the Costa Rican Appreciation Society. Nationalism in a way, but somehow the acceptable face of nationalism because it's such a lovely, cuddly country. She's going to kill us, you know that. Um, it's a lovely country, honestly. It is a nice country. The Jeff, because they are gaining a very excellent leader for the environment. 
I think Costa Rica is full of so much good news that I actually think, guys, that we're going to have to do like a drum roll for every time Costa Rica does something wonderful. Or maybe we have a special jingle or, you know, some musical interlude to announce that Costa Rica, again, has proven to be such a wonderful country. I mean, I, I have to confess, I rather thought that we might get away without an advertorial from, for Costa Rica for this week. But lovely to have Christiana insert herself into this conversation to promote her country. It's lovely to hear uh, Christiana talking again about the achievements of Costa Rica, but I was contacted by MI6, which is our security service uh, that deals with international affairs, because there is a view in some aspects of the British government, the British administration, that outrage and optimism is a vehicle for a kind of soft power push by the Costa Rican government. Um, I had to assure them that apart from a very small amount of hospitality, I've not personally benefited in any way uh, from the Costa Rican government uh, for this broadcast. But I mean, it's a legitimate concern. <laughs> yeah, are you suggesting Christiana is a, a secret agent? I mean, there is no there is no less threatening country in the world than Costa Rica. They don't even have an army. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't think a big a big soft power push from Costa Rica isn't necessary. That's the whole point. When you haven't got an army, oh, you're going to be yeah. using yeah. soft power all the yeah. time. You can't, you no know, tanks, you've got no warplanes. It's basically, it's, it's podcast and, and, and charm right. as an attempt to as an attempt to, yeah, overpower uh, the state. So what we should look out for is whether we see more people eating beans and rice as a result of this. The soft power push. It would be yeah. a sure sign that the domino theory exactly. of, 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 okay, well, fair enough. Now, Tom, after that uh, fantastic intervention from uh, Christiana, I believe um, there is a little bit of a story of a fantastic intervention from your subconscious mind. You were telling me earlier that six weeks ago when you were doing the washing up, you had a kind of brainstorm and suddenly you were overtaken by an enormous and rather inspiring idea. So can you tell well, us a little I, bit about that? <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to make too many claims about uh, having done something inspiring, but... Um, so I, it's been a long time. I feel like I do creative things in a kind of political way to try to like drive outcomes, but it's been a long time since I've done anything that could be remotely construed as something artistic or creative, for which I, I, I lament. But I was doing the washing up like, I don't know, six weeks ago at home. And I was just thinking, as you do, about the washing up and about the coronavirus and what had happened and this enormous pause that the world felt like it was going through at that moment. And to my great surprise, I just found myself like writing down um, this sort of uh, what became in the end, like a sort of narrative for kids about how they could perceive this moment of transformation as this great pause and regeneration. And the fact that we could look back at this moment as the moment we decided that we were going to change the world, regenerate the world and renew where we were. So I wrote wow. this thing and I confess I did it in like, five or seven minutes. Um, creativity is completely mysterious to me. I don't know where that comes from and I have no idea how to repeat it. Well, yeah. can, I, can I stop you for a second, Tom? Uh, there's a famous quote, I think, attributed to Picasso who said, it's not hard to do good art. It's very easy to do good art. What's hard is to be in the right mood to do good art. So it looks like you were in just the right mood. What did you produce? Right, well, I would, I would have no idea how to precipitate it again. I mean, and people will judge if it has any value, even as it is. But um, so I... I I produced it and I thought, well, this is fun. Let's see how this goes, right? Because once something's in the world, it's much more in my wheelhouse to think about how do you turn it into something. And um, I shared it with my sister, 
So my sister lived very nearby, my sister B um, and her kids and my kids, you know, play together all the time. And she is a brilliant illustrator. She's always been amazing illustration at college and she's illustrated um, all sorts of things since then. And so she took on the task of illustrating this little poem and has produced the most beautiful book. Um, and she introduced these other elements of the narrative and this other story. It's about this girl who meets an owl and then travels the world to sort of renew the landscape at this moment of transformation. And as we were doing it, uh, we were then reached out to by Ted. And um, a woman, Sharon, who I work with, shared it with Ted. And Ted said, oh, we, we'd like to make an animation out of this. So then they started uh, to create an animation with this poem as the basis. And then Jane Goodall appeared and Jane Goodall narrated it. So this I mean, yeah, it's a rather <laughs> peculiar story. So it's it's out today. It's been released. Um, so it's on the website. Wow. It, the book is called What Happened When We All Stopped. And that's the website. You can find it, whathappenedwhenweallstopped.com. Um, it's linked to what happened when we all stopped.com. Got yep. it. And also on the Ted Ed website. Um, and you can find it linked from Global Optimism. But what we thought we might do is play you the lovely voiceover that Jane did. So, and with the music that Ted constructed. But Aww. don't let this stop you from going and looking at the book with B's beautiful illustrations or indeed the animation. Quite the reverse, yeah. quite the yeah. reverse. Give it a taster, go for it. I'd love to hear it. All right, here we go, Dr. Jane Goodall. It starts as a whisper, a word on the air. It can't quite be heard, but you know that it's there. As gentle as sunlight, as tenacious as hail, in its route to the heart, it could not but prevail. And the people looked up from their day-to-day -day tasks, their day-to-day -day jobs, and their day-to-day -day masks. They heard, or they felt, where the whisper could lead, and they looked with eyes wide at what that might mean. And once they could see it, they hadn't a chance to resist the sweet song of the deep spell it cast. But the feeling it brought them at first glance was pain as they lifted their eyes on the land they had claimed, since they saw at last, as if raised from a dream, they were almost alone on the land and the sea. But the trees had almost gone, and the bees had almost gone and the creatures in their shells by the seas had almost gone. And the people felt sad as they saw their new earth, but they knew this was it, one wild chance for rebirth. Breaking new ground, seeds rolling down, smell of the earth on your hands and your brow. No time for sorrow, we're building tomorrow. The sound of things growing, now keeps us around. As the wildness grows, and the deep wood grows, and the sense that the future's come to meet you grows, there's no chance we can rest. We must do our best. This moment can lead us back home. That's our test. It starts as a whisper, a word on the air can't quite be heard, but you know that it's there. 
It then spoke like thunder until we all moved and we could and we did and it's done. She's renewed. There you go. Oh, Tom, <laughs> that was lovely. And all I want to do now is actually see it. Um, that is what a, a beautiful and inspiring sentiment. And, and the lesson uh, that uh, I think your family may agree with is that you need to do a lot more washing up. <laughs> I'll see if Natasha will approve of that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, and what's been really fun is, you know, I've, as Christiana, you know, as, has talked a lot and I've talked a lot about this idea of stubborn optimism and like facing the future with a sense that we can do something. And I think part of what I tried to do in this was to sort of say, this is the kind of narrative we can talk to kids about. You can have that sense of it's, I mean, my kids obviously have been part of this and they're really excited about this world we're going to create. And you can see um, that that's been a really animating, positive thing for them. So hopefully that will have some value in the world. Well, a, a, a plug out to something I have no commercial interest in at all uh, called Geeky Zero, uh, which is a fantastic yes. way to look at your lifestyle launched uh, this week. But um, the founder, Joanna Lee, uh, Joanne, Jo Hand, I should say, um, my former colleague, uh, when she left CDP, uh, her first uh, act was to write a children's mm. book uh, about climate change. Because I think, you know, in a way, probably one of the most powerfully seditious things about stories for children is their stories for parents yeah. too yeah absolutely that's what they are <laughs> great okay okay so we have an interview right we have an interview so we spoke this week to the completely brilliant uh executive director of unep and we did so before christiana went on holiday so she is part of this conversation obviously sorry in- unep being the united nations environment program a critically significant agency. critically significant exactly so Inga has been involved in this space for years, right? She's 30 years experience in international development, economics and sustainability and policymaking. Um, she's worked all over the world, started her career working at nonprofit organizations in the Sudan, worked at the UN on water, drought and desertification in Africa. Um, she's been at the World Bank and a range of other things. And just prior to this role, she was the director general of the International Union for Conservation of Nature. So she could sort of not be better prepared for this role. Um, the UN Environment Programme is obviously the environment part of the UN. And in fact, we asked Inga at the beginning of this conversation to set us out a bit of history, which is which is really interesting and useful. It is a critical organisation. And I remember in the days when... Um, uh, I was at the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change with Christiana and Achim Steiner was at UNEP. Um, you know, the two agencies just are so mutually supportive and they coexist so well. Mm, this yeah. like, you know, dealing with environment, dealing with climate change. And of course now, you know, the topic of this week, dealing with development, which we also talked to Inger about, which, you know, we have to look at these things in the round. And she's a real leader and deep thinker on all of those issues. Well, let's hear this extraordinary interview. Thank you. Well, Inga, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. And how wonderful that uh, Friday is the day that we release our episodes. And today, this Friday, is World Environment Day. So how fantastic that we can bring those two things together and what makes it even uh, so much better is the fact that you took the time out of your incredibly busy schedule mm. this week. You must be the most 
popular person this whole week, the most in highest oh, demand. I'm sure not. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time, particularly on uh, on such an important days, to to be with us for a while. And Inga, for for those who don't know UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, um, could could we just start there, very basically? What is UNEP? We know it is based in Nairobi, Kenya, but what, tell us And we know you lead what it. it is. We know you lead Well, we've already introduced you as that. Um, but where, you know, where, where do you see UNEP bringing its value add to the huge challenge of protecting and regenerating the environment? You know, I'm going to take you back to the beginning of time because it's really Yay. interesting. Wow. Okay, 1972, ah. Indira Gandhi and Olaf Palmer formed the Non-Aligned Movement. And both of these were, which many others, which many people do not know, they were also ardent environmentalists. And they said, look, we have the United Nations for education, we deal with health, we deal with development, we deal with all these things, we deal with disarmament. But hey, what about environment? This is, remember, this is at the time when we had acid rain in Norway and Scotland, when the Rhine was bubbling with toxicity, when tropical forests were beginning to be realized for what they are, the lungs of the world. And at that time, the brown was really pushing on, on, on the doors of many leaders. So they got together and established, um, a, a, there was a UN resolution and all the stuff that is needed, and a conference took place in Stockholm on the, on the human environment. So, and an outcome was that the United Nations Environment Programme was established. And the job of the United Nations Pro, uh, Environment Programme has been to be the global voice for the environment, hmm. to be the voice for the global environment and to be an unequivocal advocate for the environment. That's what, who we are. So what does that mean? Well, that means understanding the science that, you know, we learn from all over the world, including UN panels, but also from universities, etc., People who come out with science, we are supposed to take that and tell the world, well, this is what the science says, so you better shift your policies over here. Now, so we work in sort of three areas, if I have to make it very sort of with broad strokes. We appreciate oh, that. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> One thing is pollution, waste, and chemicals. So all the brown stuff, the stuff that we need to live right? We don't need pollution, but we need the chemicals and we need the equipment, et cetera, et cetera. But dealing with the brown agenda, waste, chemicals, pollution, et cetera. Another area, dealing with the green stuff and the blue. So nature writ large, biological diversity, i.e. all these species, all these ecosystems, how the whole thing functions. And third, uh, dealing with uh, climate change, although, as you know very well, <laughs> there is a convention, but that convention needs to be mediated into countries um, in manner so that they can uh, address uh, climate change at the national level. So that's what we try to do. We are host to 15 conventions. We are the only UN organization that has this many conventions that we are proud to host. Um, I won't bore you with all of them, but I will mention just one. Maybe we'll come in and uh, discuss more. And that one is the Convention on Biological Diversity mm -hmm. that yep. deals with nature, 
uh, and deals with species, ecosystem, ecosystem services, and essentially the the earth systems that control weather patterns, food, oxygen, uh, water, etc. So that's who we are. We are based in Nairobi, and we are very, very, very proud of that. Um, at that time in 72, it's interesting because the nation states were saying, hang on a minute, you've got a headquarters in New York, you've got another one in Paris, and then you've got one in Rome, and then you've got one in Vienna, and you've got one in Bonn. Now, these are all fine places, but is, are we seeing a pattern What about here? Africa? Yeah. What about the global south? And so what's remarkable is that at the time, Mrs. Gandhi was very supportive of putting, a, a, as was uh, Prime Minister Palmer, and uh, to, to have it placed in the global south. And they mobilized. There was a short moment where India was going to propose and then they yielded in favor of Africa. And here we are. And we have been in Nairobi uh, since 72. So that's the story of UNEP. Fantastic. Thank you. I I actually learned quite a bit with that. <laughs> thank you. I love that. Okay. I, 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 yeah, thank you very much. Um, well, since you have very helpfully set out the basic three chunks, let's say, right? The th three big baskets, the brown, the green, and blue, and climate change. Um, I wonder if you could also give us a little bit of a report card. Mm. How mm. are we doing? How are we doing? UNEP started in uh, as you took us back all the way to uh, <laughs> to its inception in uh, in 1972. And so, how are we doing? How, are, are we doing better on the brown? Are we doing better on the green and blue? Uh, we know a little bit, and we talk a lot on this podcast about what we're doing, uh, <laughs> how we're doing on climate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we would love to see from your perspective, how are we doing on those three? Well, probably we need to think about what's causing that those three are under pressure, and it is our unsustainable production and our unsustainable consumption, hmm. which, by the way, is one of the social, uh, one of the sustainable development goals. These goals that we agreed to as a global movement, as a global community in 2015. Goal number 12 for those who want to know. Anyway, so so on biodiversity, the twin sister to IPCC, which I'm sure podcast listeners would have heard about this panel that deals with the science of climate change. The twin sister to that is called IPBES, or the, the panel that deals with ecosystems and biodiversity. And that panel came out with a big global assessment last year in which they said, look, we have about 7.8 million species on this good planet, and about 1 million of them are under threat from extinction, extinction. because right. of our pressure. So you could say, well, so what? One frog, one butterfly, what does it matter? But here's the thing. Biodiversity is a finely attuned system that you can't keep sort of throwing parts out uh, because it hangs together. Whilst extinction has always existed, there are no dinosaurs on the world in the, anymore, but it's the rate at extinction that has so speeded up. So on biodiversity, no, we are not where we want to be. And of course, climate change is exacerbating this. Think coral reefs, for example, mm -hmm. um, or think systemic species shifts. You see some species, they migrate or exist in response to light, which doesn't change with climate change. The sun still rises at the same time. 
and they could start their migration at the time when the sun is thus. But other species on which they will depend on their migratory route may uh, emerge based on moisture or heat. And so you see these shifts that where this finely attuned system of a millennia is being pushed. So biodiversity, not so good. Forests, not very good. Uh, if we look at forests since 1990, we have lost about 420 million hectares of forest. Now, whilst some places we have seen that reduced, uh, we're seeing a huge pressure for agricultural land in, in, in tropical forest and other forests, which is a, a real issue because we need to feed the world, but not this way. We need to think smartly about how we feed mm. the world um, and we need to defeat poverty and have an opportunity for lifting people out of poverty through growth in countries at, and where this is desired and needed. But we need to do so not at the expense of forests. So forests, we're not doing very well. Oceans, I'm afraid the report card is not so good either. I don't want mm. you to, to get depressed. Bit of a theme but here. We have a theme here. We've altered about 66% of the marine environment and it's not for the better. Um, and of course, the oceans are these, imagine it's sort of this innocent because the ocean cannot help but take up CO2. Right. If the trees don't take it, guess what? The oceans will take it. And that means that we are changing the acidity of oceans, which has all kinds of impacts on, I mean, if you want to say it in sort of everyday language, we're turning the oceans into soda water. It's not bubbling, but it's taking on that acidity from the CO2 and that impacts, of course, um, um, coral reefs, uh, species, uh, in addition to the heating um, of the, the ocean warming that we are seeing. So it's very significant. And then pollution, just to end where I started, um, just take air pollution as an example which, by the way, in these COVID times, we've seen these remarkable pictures pre and post. Yeah. Um, about 7 million people die prematurely every year from air pollution-related um, diseases, asthma, etc., cancers. And um, 9 out of 10 people are exposed to air pollutants. So we are not doing so well. And then we can say, so what's with it? Is that the only way we can exist? That negative picture that you're painting is that just no. And that's why you're outraged. Yes, now we are outraged, but we should be optimistic because if in the middle of this catastrophic pandemic, we have learned a few things. We've learned, first of all, that people actually listen to the science. Mm -hmm. When we said the science is telling us that this transmission of uh, the pathogen pathways are this and this way. People say, whoa, we better wash our hands, we better stay at home, even if our economies will tank. We had um, all the three holy uh, holidays, uh, Passover, Easter, and Eid, and Ramadan, where religious leaders said, stay at home and be prudent. So listen to the science, number one. And number two, what we've learned is that actually by changing our behavior, not by locking people up, but by changing our emissions uh, strategy, our interactions with nature, we can turn this around. And this is what I always say. Nature is very forgiving. We give it half the chance, 
it will bounce right. back. Mm. It will bounce it's, back. It's so good to yeah. to talk to you about this. I mean, we haven't had enough of these types of conversations on the podcast. We've had we've had some of them, but this is this is really interesting. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we had Tom Crowther on, the one of the originators of the idea of a trillion trees. And you know, we talked a lot about how this really animates people as they think about the future. One of the challenges with climate change is it can feel like a series of negatives that you're trying to mitigate. But when you talk about restoring biodiversity, people remember things like how the biodiversity was when they were children and they have a very deep emotive relationship to it. It can be very motivating for people. And part of that, um, this year was going to be a huge year for biodiversity. I mean, the Mm. COP that was due to take place in China towards the end of the year, we'd very much been thinking of as like the Paris moment for biodiversity, how the world came together and did a deal for nature. Now, like so much else, of course... um, it's been slightly knocked off track in terms of timing. I understand the event itself has been postponed. How are you mobilizing to to not lose momentum and ensure we still get to the same place that we need to get to, that everything this year was intended to be? We are trying to mobilize in so many ways. Mm. And I think what we have seen, and I think the climate movement can take credit for that and the youth movement and how young people really stepped in and were concerned about the future, knowing about learning about climate change. And that, in a way, opened up what what youth had forgotten. But I think that now, amongst young people and among policymakers, we are seeing an understanding of the natural environment, that it it regulates the very existence of our planet and keeps it within this very narrow band of stability. And the more we destroy it, the more impact it has uh, on our own existence uh, and our own ability to survive. And if anything, COVID-19 has told us about the imperatives of nature, and maybe we can get back to that in zoonosis. So for COP15, we are still considering this being the super year for nature because we want to and we are seeking to raise the understanding and the awareness about the role of nature. And if we think about it, I mean, if you think back to a time when you were really happy as a child or really happy about a situation, chances are you were not sitting in an office. Chances are you were somewhere (laughs) in nature with someone you loved, your parents, your partner, whatever, your children. Not not sitting and, in a car in a busy street. <laughs> exactly. So and, and and so indigenous people teach us a degree of respect and depth for understanding of nature. And in this modern fast world, we tend to lose it, but we always find it when we go back to nature and stand by the beach or stand by the lake or watch that moon rising over the forest. We find something that is real and that is in our hearts and souls. And that Mm -hmm. is what people have connected with. And so when we want to find an ambitious post-2020 framework, the, the ambitious, I should say, Uh, When we want to get the world to agree to a new framework for biodiversity conservation, it is because no one wants to see the loss of that. Um, And I think we're beginning to understand that agriculture is not the enemy. Agriculture is part and parcel of the solution. 
smart agriculture, nature-positive agriculture. We need infrastructure to live, but we can design it much more smartly that it doesn't fragment and destroy. We can mm. integrate nature into our cities in ways that are better for our health and better for our sanity and our stress levels. So each of these, um, nature, of course, is good. It's, on the one hand, our insurance policy for future pharmaceuticals, if you like, but it's also, for health reasons, um, a cure. Mm -hmm. There are doctors who do Rx Nature. If you have high stress levels, they will prescribe walks in nature. We know that stress levels fall down. Obviously, the, if you the have Japanese cardio have their forest bath that they prescribe, right? And a forest bath is actually yes. walking in the forest. <laughs> and it is true. What happens in your brain when you are surrounded by green? You produce you produce the same chemical that you would take in a tablet if you suffer from hypertension. It's hmm. remarkable. And so um, there are some real insights here. We've also some early studies that show that children's brains and neurons in children's brains develop more intricately if the kids are exposed to green and nature. So there are all kinds of reasons why, in addition to just it's it's the right thing to do. And it's good for climate too. So, hey, yeah. what do you Absolutely. know? So we've been, uh, thank you for that brilliant exposition. I couldn't agree more. And I just want to find the doctor that will prescribe me like lovely walks in the forest <laughs> and stuff. Uh, but, uh, wait, but, wait, but, wait, they, wait Paul, you, this, yeah. you do lovely walks even without a doctor's prescription. Yes, it's true, actually. That's my little secret. Um, it's out now. Um, but um, thinking of, of uh, how we organize ourselves should we say to bring back nature to recognize that to get back into right relationship with nature um i, I can speak uh, as 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 the only person on the, on this uh, podcast me and clay are the only ones who've never worked for the united nations but uh, <laughs> but i can speak of enormous respect for the united nations system and uh, a, a huge belief in that extraordinary institution and its its capacity uh, to heal and to guide us but I want to just ask you about what you could call for fun uh, the United Corporations or the United Investors or, or the United Cities or even the, the United Citizens. Um, how can they help uh, collaborate with you, with UNEP, with each other? What would you like to see in terms of a sort of economic, political and social solution to these problems in 5, 10 or, or 50 years? Well, I think each one of us have choices. You know, we can buy the big gas guzzler and we can put Roundup whenever we see a bit of weed. I mean, there are many things we can choose to do or not do, as the case may be, right? And so be mindful of our own choices and the footprint that those choices place on nature. Um, but corporations, I'd say, you know, the more we see, for example, the big agriculture companies lean in, in positive ways and find solutions uh, to um, what is uh, an SDG2, no hunger, right? I mean, mm. we, that is important. Uh, so, but finding smart solutions that does not involve destroying of nature, what little is left, but rather that can be nature positive, ensuring that we uh, incorporate um, the support to uh, the pollinators that mm -hmm. provide a massive service. They pollinate our crops uh, for free uh, without a charge. Um, so I think many companies, and obviously I won't name, uh, but have 
sought to do um, the right thing in a complex setting and have sought to incorporate nature positive as part of the profit statements um, mm -hmm. so that uh, the return to nature is in fact a return to the company. In a sense, you can fish the proverbial waters empty and have a great quarterly report, or you can cut the forest empty and have a great timber production for that quarter, but then what? And so I think um, that we need more of that and we need to uh, be able to discern one product from the other. Is it deforestation free? When I pick it up mm, in the supermarket. Yeah. And we need to take some choices about the food we eat and what we put on our dinner table, making sure that we have a, a variety of, 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 uh, of uh, sources of protein as part and parcel of our diets. Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful summary to, to be thinking in terms of nature as the great provider. I remember uh, uh, David Attenborough, when he, he came on the first podcast, he said he, when he was young, he was studying biology. And that was about cutting up, you know, uh, samples of, of living creatures. But the idea that the very air we breathe came from nature, he said, was not really um, mm. understood or felt in scientific circles then. So, so I'm so pleased to hear you remind us that everything or the, you know, the kind of the source for it all is nature and it's the balance sheet. And that would be the financial term that we have to protect for the future. Thank you. Well, exactly. And I, I here maybe just to give a shout out to uh, Professor Pathadas Gupta, everyone or many people might remember the Lord Stern review that mm -hmm. looked at climate change and the economics uh, of climate, if you like, and, and climate economy. Well, um, a similar review is underway, uh, led by uh, Professor Pathadas Gupta of Oxford. And um, uh, this review will come out and speaks precisely to nature as an asset mm, class. Yeah. Not by putting dollar signs on nature, but understanding that without it, frankly, we have nothing. Um, and so the fertility of our soils, the pollinators, the waters, uh, the regulating of the temperature and the weather, all of this is facilitated by nature. And so not without some uh, value generating 44 trillions of, of value generation um, to, uh, from nature services uh, in, our, in our economies. Mm. Um, can I ask just so more of a sort of general question? That's so helpful to hear how those different pieces fit together. Thank you for all of those explanations. We're seeing we're such an interesting moment right now in the world. You know, we're seeing, you know, living through the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing everything that's happening in the United States at the moment with the um, the, the, the response to police brutality. We're not asking you specifically about that, but what it kind of points to is, you know, there, there is a relationship here between us and the world we live on. And historically, we've tended to sort of look at how humans meet their need in one box and how, what the environment needs in another box. And those things are sort of regarded to some degree as, as separate. And I think I can already take from what you said that we are moving towards more of an integrated view of that. But but and 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 that's needed, right, for us to find solutions. I mean, you pointed out when you said that the trees have been cut down, space is needed for agriculture at the same time we need to do that in a smart way. How how do you think about that issue now as, you know, we're facing this stark environmental challenge that you just talked about. We're also facing a real human crisis in many ways with mass unemployment, etc. How do we fit those two things together without forgetting about the right to development, the need for people to meet their own needs, to ensure that we don't allow those environment indicators to worsen in the coming years? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that we're just another animal on this planet. We're just, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we may be, 
we maybe like to think that we are the most intelligent, but bees are very intelligent too, if you like. Mm. So we, we are another animal on this planet um, and we think that we dominate it, but in fact the planet and its systems will dominate us. Um, and so the way in which we play on the planet will predict our future, right? Um, and um, so we are not separate from uh, our environment. We are part of it. And we shape it, yes, uh, as do the elephants in the savannah, um, their environment. Mm. The challenge for us, and 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 this old um, idea that you can pollute your way to development and then clean right. up later, I think we've all understood that that is very much not possible. And that um, um, maybe, maybe when we were fewer people, people felt that it was possible. It obviously wasn't, but you couldn't see the impact. But with nearly 9 billion, clearly... There has to be room for everyone. So the trick of all of this is to ensure that we understand and embody what we refer to as a 2030 agenda, this agenda of a degree of equity in development, understanding mm. that um, if my consumption is such that it limits or hinders um, to lift people out of poverty, well, then we all need to shift a little. And that is not losing, that is gaining. Mm. That means that we will have less conflict, we will have fewer diseases, we will have a better understanding of uh, sustainability and of living in balance. So I think, you know, we are part of environment and in part, an environment is part of us. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, it is that you don't negotiate with nature, you know, a zoonosis, as a disease that lives amongst animals, then often through an intermediary species, is transmitted to human beings, such as COVID-19, but the same for MERS, SARS, Ebola, HIV-AIDS, mm. uh, West Nile fever, uh, and on and on and on. Each of these zoonoses are another organism that lives. And what any organism wants is to live and, pro and, and replicate itself. That's sort of what we all do, including human beings, <laughs> including COVID-19. Mm. And this one has gotten particularly good at it. What we have are good at it in that it replicates very fast. The point here is that what we've understood about COVID is the more we encroach on nature, the more we fragment, the more we illegally trade, the more we bring species together that have no business being on top of one another in a market illegally, we create these petri dishes of possibility for new, new organisms, i.e. new viruses. So we need to understand that with the power and intellect that we have, we must take care of nature because nature takes care of us. The thing is, if we have understood this now with COVID, how important it is, we probably need to now internalize how important it is for climate hmm. because COVID is but a little overture compared to what climate change could bring. And so having an understanding of human beings and nature, our environment being inseparably the same, and therefore the responsibility that it puts on us, to me, that is absolutely essential. And that's what we try to do at UNEP. Yep. Um, that's what we try to do at UNEP. We had a little leading between Earth Day and World Environment Day, um, uh, we actually was just a father, one of our staff, who said, 
my kid is sitting at home. They want to learn about nature. So we came up with this idea of doing Earth School. Earth School. I know. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. It's kept I'm us so alive. I'm so glad that you brought That's it right. up. Earth School. <laughs> you know, it was the best, coolest thing, 30 quests. And it, honestly, it was two staff who just said, hey, our kids are at home. We need to do something. We, we know people. And these two magnificent staff just created it out of nothing. And this is what the United Nations environment can deliver. Mm. Yes. They delivered it in 10 days with so many partners. It was a super positive thing. And it has hopefully helped sensitize people to the fact that we are nature and nature are us. Absolutely. I can absolutely, absolutely attest to the fact that it has helped us who are at home with small children. So thank you for keeping <laughs> us sane. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. There you go. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> test has been approved. Um, well, Inga, thank you so much. We uh, Unfortunately, we have to let you go because, as I said at the beginning, you are in high demand uh, always, but especially today and this week. Uh, just to close out, um, we traditionally ask uh, our guests whether they stand more on the side of outrage or more on the side of optimism. And particularly from you, I would really like to hear where you stand because 2020 is the beginning of the critical decisive decade for climate. It is the decade, the UN decade for ecosystem restoration. It is basically we're standing with 10 years time, very short 10 years time, on all ecosystems to repair them, bring them back to health, regenerate them. Uh, and here we are completely paralyzed in this unbelievable crisis that we are. And of course, a lot of what is going to happen over the next decade is going to deter be determined by decisions of governments as they come out of the health crisis and move into the so-called recovery, which I wish they wouldn't call recovery, but rather regeneration, because it's what we have. We can't recover back to the past. We have to regenerate. But I just wanted to get your overall thoughts of, you know, standing here, looking forward into this decade from where we are with all the lessons that we have learned, but also with all the dangers that we have of making the wrong decisions over the next few months. Where do you stand on that space between outrage mm. and optimism? You know, the days when I'm outraged and then I find my better self and I find the optimist uh, because the better self will be the one that I see in the young people, the one that I see in responsible business leaders, the one that I see in civil society, in spite of what we also know uh, that causes the outrage to turn up. So I think if we do not hold on to that degree of we can make this turnaround, then we might as well all sit back and give up right now and just be satisfied in our outrage. That's not a very helpful situation. I would when say miserable in our outrage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that satisfied. Justified, though. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think we need to use that outrage that does turn up in us and channel it into positive action. Mm. And I see that in people are taking it into the, over the dinner table. They are taking it into the schools. They are taking it into businesses. They are taking it into the voting booth. They're taking it onto the street. And I think as a positive, we can make this change. Uh, 
for the better, for the planet. That's the way we have to go. And so yeah. that's, I think when you work on environment, it's very easy to get stuck in one groove and think uh, all the things are so bad, which it is, but we also have the solutions and there are lots of people who are working very hard to shift it. But the truth is, and I will stop here, we don't have a lot of time. And I have been long enough in the tooth to have been saying the window is closing. And now I say the window is closing. And this time I really mean it. Yes, <laughs> good point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we absolutely now need to take these actions because science yeah. tells us so. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Inga, thank you so, so much. Um, despite uh, all the pressures upon us, uh, we do celebrate World Environment Day, celebrated in our hearts and celebrated in the work that we all do. So thank you very much. It's been total joy to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. What a privilege to get to sit down, especially on World Environment Day with the head of the UN Environment Programme. So very, very grateful to her for making the time to talk to us. Um, sadly, we don't have Christiana to join us for this wrap-up of reflections. But Paul, what did you leave that conversation with? What impressions did you have of the executive director of UNEP and her work? Well, in the introduction, you were talking about development and the relationship with the, uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. I also noticed the discussion of biodiversity and and you know it even goes right back to our discussion of, of the social issues at the start of this podcast the interconnection of everything um and and how we need to attend to all of these issues and um you know it's not so much uh, a comment particularly on this interview but really a thought for the future i'm i'm very um uh, excited to hear that the, the leader of the United Nations Environment Programme, which which is a multi-hundred million dollar body devoted to our common future and and, and protecting uh, us all, um, I think we we need to we need to make contact with other um, leaders of of major agencies and others. You know, listeners, we welcome your suggestions to help us as a movement begin to recognise each other and the support we can provide each other and the and uh, the interlocking capacity for collaboration to achieve more. To in fact. Uh, to borrow a phrase from somebody else, not just do our best, but succeed in doing what is necessary. Uh -huh. I've heard that phrase before, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, totally. And I think that actually be very interesting to speak to some of the big NGOs, which we haven't done yet on this podcast. So let's definitely do that going forward. I was really inspired by her sort of like combination of facing the reality that we're in, um, looking at COVID and looking at other different things like that, not denying that reality, but also refusing to accept that that doesn't mean that the important work that she is engaged in and that the world needs to be focused on of a global deal for nature and making progress, none of that can stop, right? We have to keep moving further forward. And she was very, um, you know, gently very resilient about that fact and i'm sure she's extremely effective in dealing with ministers um in a senior way and getting them calling them to action and calling them to their better selves and i think you know in that that second point she wasn't afraid to sort of point out that this is a human endeavor and we need to bring all of our humanity to this issue and um i saw a lot of how how christiana was effective in at the un mm. in her and in that approach as well and i'm sure that she's probably um uh, quite difficult to say no to if you are a recalcitrant country in the UN, which is just what we want. That's what we look for in our international diplomats, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. 
So this has been a good episode of World Environment Day um, happening at a moment of great transformation. Um, we miss you, Christiana. We're delighted that you are taking mm. some time off. Uh, we don't know anyone who works harder than you. Hope you're actually not listening to this while you're on holiday. Um, yeah, yeah. Next week, we will be back with a conversation uh, with a great leader called Lindsay Levin that Christiana pre-recorded with Christiana. We'll bring it to you next week. Um, hope you have enjoyed this conversation and we will look forward to seeing you soon. Lovely to be with you. Bye-bye for now. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilia Herman. Thank you to the team that makes this happen. Sharon Johnson, Sarah Law, Sophie McDonald, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. I just realized I, I don't think I've ever thanked our hosts, so thank you to our hosts, Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. A special thanks this week to Nandita Surendran and Daniel Cooney for making this week's interview possible. And of course, a thank you to our guest, United Nations Environment Program Executive Director, Inga Anderson. To continue the celebration of World Environment Day, be sure to watch Tom's new video in collaboration with Jane Goodall and Ted Ed at whathappenedwhenweallstopped.com. I've put that link in the show notes, but you can also find it on our social media pages. And you should also know, you can download the book with B. Rivet Karnak's beautiful illustrations for free at that same link in the show notes below. I've got mine downloaded and I'm actually going to read it to my son tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. And speaking of social media, you can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And you can email us at podcast at globaloptimism.com. And while you're on the internet, if you love this podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Okay, next week, a conversation with Lindsay Levin. We'll see you then.